Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the In-House Roundhouse. Today, we're going to be talking about issues in the energy industry. I mean, we're lucky enough to have some of the leaders in our energy sector with us today for the podcast. And we have Belton Ziegler, who is here with us from our Columbia, South Carolina office. Great to be here, Mark. Belton, excited to have you here. Paul Stockley. Thank you, Paul. Will you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, yes. Thanks, Mark, and thanks for inviting us in today. So, yes, my name is Paul Stockley, and I'm a partner in the London office of the combination. And I joined the firm 15 years ago. I recently celebrated my 15th anniversary with the firm. Congratulations. <laughs> which was great. And I am an oil and gas lawyer, and I head up that part of our energy sector focus. I joined the firm having spent a period of time on secondment Shell in London, which was what opened my eyes to the oil industry and how exciting and interesting it could be. And then I came out of private practice after about five years of qualification and joined Hess Corporation, a New York listed oil company, who at that time in the late 1990s uh, was one of the biggest uh, independent players in the UK North Sea and also had a global portfolio. So I spent six years uh, working with Hess in the UK and internationally before joining the firm. And uh, we started our oil and gas practice from that. And it's grown to something quite significant now. And the combination gives us opportunities to grow it even further. Terrific. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit on this podcast about some of the some of the advantages from the combination. So I appreciate that. Um, Chris Towner is also joining us from the UK. Chris, do you want to tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Thanks, and I'm also very happy to be here in, in North Carolina, which is the first time for me. Um, I joined what was then um, Bon Piers back in 2006. I'd been working in the city on what you might describe as classical thermal, coal-fired, gas-fired power projects for a number of years. And then I joined Bon Pierce as was, in what was the start of the renewables development in the UK. Essentially, I'm focused on the electricity sector, and, and primarily I've been working in the renewable sector as renewables are developing in the UK. Now very excited to come to the US and to see how that is developing in the US and the combinations and the opportunities that are afforded to us through the whole Womble Bond Dickinson arrangement. Terrific. No, thanks, Chris. And renewables are definitely something I think that our audience is going to want to hear about. Belton, I introduced you and didn't give you a chance to tell us about yourself. So let me Certainly. let me go back and uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, um, I've been at uh, Womble Bond Dickinson for four years now. And um, my background is mainly in the electric and gas utilities industry. I've worked with integrated electric and gas utilities, been a general counsel of a electric and gas utility in the past, and also work with water and wastewater utilities. Um, the one thing I probably um, spend more time with than other things are utility accounting, rate-making, pricing, contracting, and the entire piece that uh, links the engineering to the finance in a utility business. That's great. You know, one thing um, that I know Bond Dickinson already had in place, and we now have in place as Womble Bond Dickinson, is more of a sector focus. That's mm -hmm. not something that's always been the case with the legacy Womble Carlisle. We obviously had industry teams, but it wasn't uh, structured the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about what the energy sector is? I know all three of you practice in that, but for our listeners, what, what is the Womble Bond Dickinson energy sector? 
Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so within the UK, we have as a practice gone to market through sectors for many years, certainly for all of the 15 years that I've been in the firm. And when I came out of Hess, the only reason I joined the firm in the first place was the attraction of being able to be sector focused, having been sector focused in-house. So it's been a long standing thing within the UK side of the firm. The sector for us is both power and renewables, which is the piece that's led by Chris, and then oil and gas. And the, if I'm honest, the power renewables piece came first. Uh, we were involved in the very first of the wind farms in the UK, onshore, Delabole in Cornwall, yeah. uh, which went up or was financed in the late 1980s. And so we've been through it ever since then. And we initially, we came to the market through real estate and planning. But over the years, we've brought in fabulous people like Chris to bring the, the commercial angle and the finance and the transactional piece as well. So it's become a much fuller service. And then we followed the same pattern in oil and gas. So oil and gas came in 2003 when I joined and we've built up a team now that's uh, Aberdeen and it's London and it's focused on the whole part of the upstream, midstream and downstream part of the oil and gas sector. And what's so exciting for us now is that what we've always done is the sort of the UK piece of the energy sector. And now through the combination, we're beginning to have far more international horizons and it's where we can now take it together. And, and part of the attraction has always been you know, presenting that strength in depth to clients of, of the lawyers you're dealing with are very much immersed in the energy sector. You know, they very much speak the language, they very much understand the problems that are keeping you awake at night. And so, you know, it's not just lawyers who do other M&A type transactions. You know, these are guys who spend 100% of their time doing what you do and are interested in what you're doing. Yeah, that's a really good point. What we found when we began organizing the United States around energy sectors was that we had a great deal of experience and talent and relationships in the sector, but they had never been brought together in one place. And we were really quite pleasantly surprised to find the depth of knowledge we had and the depth of experience. There were people who were experts in land planning and permitting and real estate, right-of-way acquisition that had been working in the energy sector for pretty much their entire careers, but never thought of themselves as energy lawyers. And the strength of a sector organization is that you're not subject matter limited. You've got people who are employment lawyers who know the energy sector. You've got real estate lawyers who know the energy sector, finance, um, M&A lawyers who know the sector. So you end up with a team almost like the in-house general counsel would want to put around him or herself for a particular business. But it's focused on energy and all those pieces are there available for use. And these guys are making great points because I think what we have found by focusing on sectors and focusing on industries, you can open doors with clients that you probably wouldn't necessarily open if you didn't have that focus. And, you know, we've built teams where folk have either come from in-house roles and therefore speak the language as they arrive, or we second our associates in and they love that experience. You know, they go into these clients and are immersed sometimes you know sometimes only for short term secondments but what we generally find is that the clients love them and keep them there for longer and you know sometimes you lose those associates but you're gaining a you know a client's another client contact right 
Now, I think those are great points. And I know from prior podcasts and talking to the general counsel, you know, they want people that understand the industry and the language. They don't want to have to re-educate someone. So I think being able to say, you know, we've got a sector, we've got, we've, we've got folks that have experience in energy and understand those issues is a definite leg up. And I think, you, I think you're right, Belton. I know, and been talking to some other sectors too, I think there is a lot of depth of experience, but until you begin organizing it that way mm. and talking to each other, and sharing about, oh, I didn't realize you're doing that component and I've handled this merger and, well, you handled that regulatory issue. Yeah. You, you can find those synergies and kind of form you know, a team by actually focusing on sector. So I think it's been a great great exercise. From- and we were, sorry, I was just going to say, we, we were amazed actually because going into the combination and mm-hmm. the alliance that came before that, if I'm honest, we're not aware of the sector capability, this side of the pond. And so it was, it was eye-opening. It was fantastic. It was eye-opening for us too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example of how this works. Um, back some years ago, I was working on a transmission project, and the, I was in-house. And my employer said, uh, well, I raised my hand and said, I would like to go and be trained as a uh, NERC-certified transmission operator, which means I theoretically could operate a transmission system. You'd mm-hmm. be crazy to let me do it. But I went through the academic side of it. And I was recently having to do some work with a group of transmission planners, and they were not sure they wanted to open up to me. They weren't sure who I was. I said, you know, I'm a NERC certified, once was a NERC certified transmission operator. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. You understand this stuff. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the door is open. Often you would have to have someone from the in-house council as the uh, sponsor to open those doors and to get people opening up. But if you know the industry, you can find the people you work with are much more receptive to giving you the support and the Mm. candor you need to do your job as a lawyer. Oh, that's terrific. Well, since I've got some uh, great minds in in terms of energy sector, I thought I would ask some questions about what's going on in the sector. And again, I'm not an energy lawyer, so forgive uh, (laughs) forgive my (laughs) uh, my basic questions. I know one thing I've certainly seen articles about is wind generation, in particular offshore wind generation. I know it's been an issue in North Carolina and other states. And I know in many ways, I think the UK is further ahead in some fashion for wind generation. But tell me a little bit about what's going on in the in the wind generation space and particularly offshore? Sure. If I start, in terms of the UK, is the UK has more offshore wind turbines in the water than any other country in the world. And that tells you one thing in terms of, yes, we were the first mover. Also tells you that we probably made a number of mistakes in the way that we've gone about <laughs> um, doing this right. that other people can probably learn from. So it has been a learning process in terms of the UK. So the UK has a lot of things in the water. It's carrying on developing in the UK. There have been political issues in the UK in relation to onshore wind turbines and and appearance issues and potentially noise issues. So putting them offshore is is partially a political issue, Mm. but it very much has political support. And in terms of achieving our international obligations under the Paris Agreement, etc., it is seen as one of the key drivers for the UK going forwards through to 2030. And the Crown Estate, which owns the offshore rights in the UK, later this year will actually be releasing further areas for companies to place turbines out. And that's with a view to developing the pipeline of offshore wind projects in UK waters out towards 2030. So there is a lot going on in the UK and there will continue to be a lot going on in the UK. These are very large, substantial projects, typically with a capital expenditure of 1 billion or 2 billion now, at least uh, an average size Mm. offshore wind farm, shall we say. But one of the other areas, of course, is how that experience can now be translated into other jurisdictions, be it South Carolina and be it the expansion off the East Coast. Uh 
Do you want to pick up Belton on the East it's, Coast? Yes, the East Coast is fascinating because there is a very active process of identifying and leasing spaces. Because the continental shelf has such a gradual slope in this area, you can put the turbines pretty far offshore, far enough offshore that you can't see them. And they're still not in too deep water, which is very, mm. very helpful. Mm. The um, wind farms are utility scale in the sense they're not tens of megawatts, they're thousands, a thousand megawatts or more, which is the size of the historic coal plants or other plants that were uh, built. And so there's real economies of scale with them. The, the facilities themselves are quite impressive as engineering matters. They're very big and they're very efficient. Uh, it is a very viable alternative energy source, renewable energy source, that can be done at scale and can have a huge impact on carbon emissions if it's done correctly. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of political concern. There are a lot of environmental concerns. The uh, offshore fishing industries are concerned. But we'll have to work through all that. But the promise is very much there. And we're seeing and, New yeah. Jersey, Massachusetts um, are taking the lead right now. Maryland has some very active uh, activities. They're looking to go offshore in South Carolina. And North Carolina, of course, has got the Kitty Hawk project. So they're important projects going forward. It's going to make a big impact on on mm -hmm. um, the utility industry. Just, so just the exciting thing I was going to say, I mean, I'm not the offshore winds man, but um, the exciting thing from the business perspective for us is that we have UK developer clients who are now looking at the US offshore opportunities. So there's that opportunity to, for the teams to cooperate and cross-sell. And you're seeing cable laying companies because you have to lay the cables to yeah, get the power Yeah, I mean, off again, this has across. been a while since I've, I've read about it, but right, isn't one of the problems, you have to generate the wind power, but getting it back mm -hmm. onshore is a substantial challenge, right? I mean, is that still a big part of the problem, or are there technological solutions that, that make that more feasible now? The undersea cables are pretty good. I mean, that's not a technical issue. There's often a concern of, from area landowners about what's the aesthetics of bringing mm -hmm. the cable onshore. But that can be handled as well as any other uh, electric mm -hmm. substation that you're talking about. Yeah, and, and we've had a variety of experiences in the UK in terms of how deep to bury the cable and the different methods of burying cables and, and how they can be protected going forward. So again, I think it's been a learning process. And, and again, I think it's a case of actually <laughs> mm -hmm. taking those learnings and talking about them and being open about them and saying for other jurisdictions, look, actually, there are sensible and most cost-effective ways, and, and depending on the quality of the seabed, et cetera, to actually address those risks. So yes, you know, initially there were a number of issues, certainly in the UK, but you know, it's something we've certainly got much better at. And I'm sure the offshore engineering guys will be also transposing those learnings as we as lawyers are transposing those learnings. One, one thing that I didn't understand until I started looking into this in more detail is that uh, the consistency and the amount of wind offshore is so much greater than onshore. Mm. And that really makes for a much more reliable resource that can contribute more hours of the year. The problem with solar, of course, is there's no solar when the sun's not shining. Mm. And that's not true with wind. Wind blows pretty constantly in the, mm. in the coastal regions, yeah. and that's very helpful. And that also leads to what we're seeing in Northwest Europe, not just in the UK, but across Germany, the Netherlands, France, is that utilities are bidding in at effectively zero for contracts, i.e. they do not require subsidy from the consumer across the course of 15 years. They're looking to for support contracts, but effectively at zero cost to the consumer, um, which is great news in terms of you know the story behind them. So this isn't actually a cost to consumer, but it's clearly a contribution in, in terms of climate change and carbon. 
That's great. Mm. The other you, great technology, of course, is battery storage. Yeah, and you had mentioned uh, solar and the problem. That's so right. Te- yeah, tell so me what's, what's what, happening there. There's a lot of work being done to create batteries that can be delivered economically at scale so that you can have a solar resource that charges the battery and the battery's there. 24/7, and we're be beginning to see more solar projects that are tied to battery storage, so that you have a reliable capacity coming out of the overall project. It's very exciting stuff. The cost of the batteries and the reliability of the batteries is getting better and better. Uh, and as that happens, I think you'll see more solar tied with batteries. That also means you can, in effect, set up a microgrid. If you're worried about reliability to your data center or to your industrial location, you can have the knowledge that either the solar panels are generating the power or the battery storage is there in case something Mm. goes wrong on the system. And that's a very powerful model. We're also beginning to see some very interesting smaller gas-fired turbines that can be used for microgrid activities, microgrid systems. These can be located at an industrial site, um, high efficiency. And, of course, with gas prices being low, uh, the fuel cost is not as great as it has been in the past. Mm-hmm. And you can create that reliability function by having your, your own generating source right on site. Yeah. And then in the UK, we're also starting to see the development of combined technologies. So it's, it's not just solar with battery storage, but it's also solar with storage with those small gas mm-hmm. reciprocating engines as well potentially with some wind as well. Mm. So the developer is actually choosing and optimizing the plant depending on the resource that is available at any particular moment in time and and the price. And the next technology are the small gas turbines, and there's waste heat from them, which can be very valuable for industrial processes or district heating and cooling where you have a subdivision or a downtown area where the heat that would otherwise be wasted by a generating turbine is used to provide heat or you can use desiccant cooling so that you can actually get cooling out of the um, mm-hmm. out of the heat source. So ways to get every possible value out of a BTU, which is very, very exciting and the, stuff. And in the UK, we're seeing district heating, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. what, is no, district, no need, what is district heating? No need heating? for district cooling, though. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, district heating is where, through providing a, a series of pipeline installations ac- across a town or a new housing estate or a new industrial unit, you actually provide from electricity generating source, you actually provide heat. Okay. So if you're taking some of the low-grade heat from the, the power station, you could actually use it to provide heat into the homes rather than typically in the UK, we'd be burning gas. Mm-hmm. And so right. you can use that. Belton, I think district cooling is more of an American thing, as yes. it's yes. not a problem that we <laughs> don't need to cooling up there. The you open the window <laughs> to get cooling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. A friend of mine showed me a, a London newspaper that said 84 degrees and no relief in sight. That is, <laughs> in, in the South, that is a yeah. cool, yes, cool exactly. day. That's yes. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's true. The um, the idea is how do you get the most BTU? How do you get the most value out of mm. the BTUs? And mm. there's always going to be carbon emissions whenever you burn coal or gas. How do you make sure you get the most value out of what you're doing? Because there is a stress put on the environment by using any of those resources. Yeah. So if we are seeing this. Um big shift among um, major uh, utility providers, uh, energy providers to renewables, what kind of legal issues and and needs and and objectives does that create for those uh, companies then? What what is it that they're 
what kind of new challenges, I guess, are they facing from mm-hmm. a legal standpoint that maybe they hadn't before? Uh, specifically, I'd be curious to know as they're transitioning away from, I think Belden mentioned the, the fact that the wind farms can produce as much electricity as the traditional um, coal-fired um, energy plants. I would imagine more coal-fired energy plants are then going offline. Mm-hmm. Um, what, you know, are there legal implications to that? And how are you all helping those uh, clients address those concerns? A very good question. A fair number of answers. It, but if we just take some, one that typically comes out is, is a question around, as you've kind of touching on and Belton's already touched on in terms of balancing the system. And so as you replace coal-fired generation that can actually respond, say, within two or three hours to peaks in, in demand, um, in terms of renewables, clearly it's different because you know solar is not available all the time and, and even wind, while offshore wind is, is much more reliable, is it's not necessarily operating 100% of the time, all of the time. Um, and so in terms of balancing the system, how are you going to go around doing that? And it requires a more active, it's only in terms of the UK and Europe, system operator intervention mm-hmm. in terms of having more resources for the person who is responsible for managing the balancing of the system to call on more plants to provide different types of services to help them balance the voltage on the system, to balance the frequency on the system, to know what is coming next and to keep the system in balance between supply and demand of power on the system. So there's been a range of contracts that have been developed, certainly in terms of the UK and in Europe, around how you actually provide those services. And to be honest, that actually provides more opportunities for developers of projects and renewable projects as well, because it extends the range of services that they actually provide. And it's all being done on a market basis. So ideally, price discovery should be correct and it should be at the lowest cost to consumer rather than actually being mandated by central government. So that's only one of the issues that we're seeing. Yes, and we refer to it as balancing and load following, balancing the system and following a load that's changing. And it is priced in the markets, and there are different resources that can do it better and worse. And um, we can help people tailor a particular project so that they get the maximum value out of all the potential services that that project can offer. The other thing we're seeing, I think, on both sides of the Atlantic is that there is more emphasis, there's more desire on the part of industries and private companies to have renewable resources as part of their portfolio. More and more industries, mm-hmm. uh, retailers, household names for various products are saying, we want to be 100% green. Mm-hmm. And so what you're seeing is these entities are coming into the market and they need to buy renewable energy credits from entities that are developing wind or solar or some other asset like that. So there's a three-part transaction, which is the credits that have to be generated and given to the the entity that wants those credits. You've got to also be able to put that power once it's generated onto the grid. And so you have to develop a series of contracts and other arrangements with the utilities to put the power on the grid. And in some cases, if you have a, uh, you may have someone actually with an offtake agreement too. Mm-hmm. But it's a complicated situation, but it's becoming more complicated because so many more players want to be involved, either as developers or as entities that are saying we are getting a PPA for solar power, for mm-hmm. wind power, so that we can meet a corporate commitment on sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly reflects what we've seen in terms of, of Europe, in terms of. Previously, the utilities have had to be mandated to purchase from renewable projects, um, whereas increasingly it's, it's been driven by consumer demand, and the, the mandatory side in the UK is, is suddenly declining and, and will eventually wither away. 
Um, but it is coming through from demand from the consumer side and particularly the large industrial corporate side. And broadly speaking, you know, we're seeing them three main drivers there, and the renewable side and the green credentials is one of them. Uh, the other one is is the question around if you're contracting quasi directly with a project, and there, there are legal issues around how you actually get to that point. But if you are trying to buy your power and identifying a project that you're buying your power from, you can get price certainty. And, and depending what happens next with oil prices, you know, and your view of that, then price certainty might be quite important mm. to you. And there is also the point which we've slightly touched on about security of supply. So if you are a data server center or if, you, if security supply is very important to you, do you actually want to create your own microgrid and create your own project on your own site or adjacent to your site and buy directly from that as well? So the three main drivers about security supply, price certainty, and the green credentials are all driving the power purchase agreement market for large corporates. Another way to look at this is there is a life cycle to a generating resource an energy resource. It begins with land acquisition, property acquisition, permitting, construction, doing the initial set of contracts for dealing with the offput and the purchase of fuel if there is a fuel source. And then at the end of the life cycle, it's decommissioning. How do you successfully take that facility down, take it back to a green field, deal with all the environmental and other regulatory mm. requirements for effectively disposing of the components of that system. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've discovered in putting our energy sector together is we've got the people who can do all those aspects. Yeah. They are in various subspecialties of the law, but they're all energy lawyers. And, and, and we've talked a little bit about climate change and the focus on green. I'm interested in your perspective, Paul, about the impact of that on the oil and gas industries. Yeah, well, certainly, because I was going to interject at one point during that debate um, that in Europe, we're increasingly seeing some of the traditional oil companies either move in a wholesale way to renewables or certainly in part and taking it much more seriously than than I think ever they have done before. Uh, a couple of examples, um, the Danish state oil company, which was Dong, Danish oil and natural gas, recently sold its entire oil and gas business to Ineos, the chemicals-focused uh, uh, player. So they've now focused entirely, changed their name to Ersted, and uh, focused entirely on renewables. So they have ongoing projects in the UK already, and they're one of the players looking at US offshore. Statoil, the Norwegian oil company has this week changed its name. Uh, oil and gas is still a big part of its business, but you can see that there's that sense that they need to um, move away from just being pure fossil fuel companies and to have a wider energy mix. And so we're focusing our practice in the same way. I mean, we always have done, but it makes sense to have our energy lawyers as true energy lawyers and the associates coming through will do both oil and gas, but also power and renewables work. In terms of climate change generally, of course, the oil companies need to react to it. Uh, you, you know, you still have some that are focused entirely on in the oil and gas space, but it's a changing landscape, let's say. But that kind of takes us into one of the other areas in terms of, you know, we are going to need oil and certainly <laughs> gas for quite an extended period to come. And while electric vehicles, you know, there are lots of headlines yes. around electric vehicles, certainly in Europe at the moment. Mm. And I know in Norway, 50% of all new cars that are sold are either hybrids or pure electric battery vehicles. Wow. 
But even at that rate of progress, it will take 15 years for all cars in Norway to actually be electric. So, yes. and, and, yeah. and they're slightly further ahead, and there's only 3 million vehicles in, in Norway as compared to, say, the and UK they're heavy, or the States. heavily subsidised, mm-hmm. and unlike exactly. other countries, heavily yeah. sub- supported by the government and to, places, to go electric. It places big strains on an electric grid to have a lot of automobiles recharging. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of power, and the yeah. grids have not been built for that. So the utilities mm-hmm. are having to retrofit to be able to deal with, with that piece. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting to think about is the global perspective, which is Europe, UK, the United States are energy-intensive in, uh, economies. We've had the luxury of that because we've had the money to do it. The rest of the world is hungry for energy, mm-hmm. and there are lots of places that uh, need, desperately need more energy of one sort or another. And one of the things that's interesting about the combination is that most energy deals are either done based on UK or US law. And we now have both components. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can go anywhere in the world and have the lawyers who can deal with the contract issues and the other issues. Because these are not done using local law in other countries. It's usually done under one of those two structures. Yeah, and it's... Yeah, it's one of the things that's so exciting for us about the combination that, as I said earlier, that we had a UK practice and we we would move internationally, I suppose, with our clients, but pre-combination, we were mainly a domestic practice. And as Chris said earlier, the challenges for sort of onshore renewables now mean that that market's still very much there. But, but more challenged. So the idea of internationalizing our practice is the strategic focus and energy is clearly a global industry and with, with the skills of, of the US side and the UK side, we can in principle go anywhere. Energy is sort of a silent player in the economy and that most people don't pay as much attention to it as you would think given the amount of money and investment and infrastructure that's there. It is really astonishing. Um, one fact that's quite interesting is the eastern interconnection of the United States, which goes from west of the Mississippi through Quebec and the maritime provinces of Canada, is the largest single engine in the world. It's all completely coordinated. The peak of a cycle in Colorado will be the same as the peak of a cycle in Montreal, because when that system is working as it should, it is a single machine run by multiple players. And the amount of investment, the amount of money, the amount of importance it has to our ability to conduct life is amazing. We don't pay as much attention to it as we should sometimes. But uh, our sector is there to be sure that we have people who do know what that system looks like and what the energy markets are so that we can advise our clients well. Terrific. Any other, we're about out of time, but I welcome any, any other final comments, anything, Paul, Chris, you want to, you want to add to that? That was a pretty good summation by Belton there. I thought it was a really good summation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the importance of life, you know, yeah. life itself. So exactly. That, yeah. that takes it to the pretty, you know, foundation. Well, I'll I think say one other thing that's really <laughs> a lot of fun about the combination. You realize going across the Atlantic, going into a somewhat different culture than ours, how much communality there is among people who practice in a particular industry sector and how easy it is to develop a real sense of collegiality and uh, and shared purpose with people who are in that same sector. It's been a lot of fun. It's, that's a really good point, yeah, because I guess the, the, the energy sector is a global sector, but in a way the energy community and then the energy legal community within that energy community is actually quite small. 
and it is very collegiate. And then, of course, what we found within the combination is that it's been just a very collaborative um, process in getting to know our US colleagues. And I think it's just worked really well from start and um, hopefully will continue for a long time in the future. We certainly hope so. Very much. Terrific. All right. Well, Belton, Paul, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. This has been the In-House Roundhouse podcast. If you want to listen to former episodes, you can do so by going to our website, or you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Again, my name's Mark Enriquez. I'm your host. Thank you for joining us. See you at the next station. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you.